Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value when it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership, or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner. Today, a follow-up from our previous episode, which was called The Stupidest Thing You Can Do With Your Money. This one, we hope, is even more useful. It's called Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Money But Were Afraid to Ask. Thanks for listening. A bunch of years ago, I had just quit what I thought was my dream career, trying to become a rock star. And now I was trying to figure out what came next. I was considering three options. Number one was to become a shrink. I really liked psychology, but in the end, I decided I was too selfish to spend my days helping other people with their problems. Number two was to become a financial advisor. I really liked learning about saving and budgeting and investing. But again, I was selfish. I didn't want to devote all my energy to other people's problems. Number three was to become a writer, and that's what I did. But the other ideas didn't just go away. There's at least a little bit of psychology in just about every episode of Freakonomics Radio. As for the financial stuff, well, that's something we all wrestle with every day, isn't it? Today on Freakonomics Radio, we'll wrestle with it together. We will wrestle with the standard advice on how much to save. You have just told me to save 20% of my money. F*** you. We'll wrestle with the fact that a financial windfall does not guarantee long-term success. We found that 15% declare bankruptcy. And we'll lay out a personal finance roadmap that anyone can follow. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's basically, um, you know, pretty simple. Avoid emotions and uh, concentrate on the economics. WNYC Studios, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Anna Maria Lusardi is an economist who teaches in the business school at George Washington University. I was born and raised in Milan and uh, moved to the U.S. about uh, 25 years or so ago for my graduate studies. As you can tell, she still sounds a bit Milanese. I have to say, I, I cannot get rid of it. It's uh, inside me. When Lusardi first moved to the States, many things were unfamiliar. Our sports, for instance, especially American football. I only became interested in football because everybody is watching football on Sunday. 
So, you know, if I needed to talk to my friend, we had to talk about football first. And then when I met the football players, then I had to, you know, be able to talk football seriously. When she met the football players, what's that all about? Well, a few years back, George Washington University started a special MBA program called STAR that stands for Special Talent, Access, and Responsibility. The program was designed for people who were already very successful. They are often very wealthy and they have to manage many things, you know, not just their wealth, but also their name, their reputations. And it just so happened that most of the students were actually athletes and the majority of athletes were actually football players. These were professional football players. Some of them were from the Baltimore Ravens, and I am a big Baltimore Ravens fan. They are, first of all, incredible students. They are my favorite students. Why were they her favorites? Lusardi found her athlete students incredibly disciplined and, perhaps not surprisingly, good team players. She was also impressed with how charitable they were, and she was charmed by their sheer size. One day, she was talking about the financing options of buying a car. The example she'd always used in previous classes was a Toyota Corolla. But the football players all started giggling. One student raised his hand. Professor Anna, he said, I do not fit into a Toyota Corolla. Lusardi also realized that these NFL players were facing an unusual financial predicament. These are people which are very talented, very competent, but they have no knowledge of how to manage this money, where often they come from background where, you know, nobody has taught them financial literacy. Financial literacy is, and has been for a couple decades, Anna Maria Lusardi's passion. You know, we make financial decisions every day. And the financial decisions that we make today are different than the decisions that our parents made. Our parents didn't have to worry about pensions, didn't face the type of mortgages uh, we face now, didn't have probably all the credit cards and all this consumer credit at their fingertips. And also, they didn't have student loans. Um, but we see other trends as well. For example, financial markets around the world have become more complex. Many economists, for many years, have assumed that most people are financially literate. So, for example, we assume that people know about interest compounding and they know about risk and risk diversification and they act accordingly. But how much do people really know about the most basic financial principles? That is what Lusardi, in collaboration with the economist Olivia Mitchell, set out to learn. They came up with three survey questions. This was actually driven by the fact that in the first survey, we only had room for three. They piggybacked their financial literacy questions onto the 2004 Health and Retirement Study. Being limited to three questions turned out to be a blessing. Because first of all, these questions are, are very predictive, but also because they are only three, they were adopted in so many national surveys in the U.S. and then in as many as 15 other countries around the world. And more recently, a variation of these questions have been added to a global survey. So now we know about uh, financial literacy around the world. Okay, before we hear about the state of financial literacy around the world, Let's hear the questions. Number one. Suppose you have $100 
in a savings account, and the interest rate was 2% per year. After five years, how much do you think you would have in the account if you left the money to grow? The answers were multiple choice. A, more than $102. B, exactly $102. C, less than $102. Or, if you really want to play along, D, I don't know. And the correct answer is? The correct answer is A, more than $102. Because 2% interest on $100 in a year is $2. So after year one, you have $102. And then over the remaining four years, the interest grows on that $102 and so on. And that is why compound interest has been called the eighth wonder of the world. Question one is about compound interest, but really is about assessing numeracy. Okay, question number two. Question two is about inflation. Imagine that the interest rate on your savings account was 1% per year and inflation was 2% per year. After one year, how much would you be able to buy with the money in this account? The answers. A, more than today, B, exactly the same as today, C, less than today, or D, I don't know. The answer is less than today. Because if inflation is 2%, prices go up 2%. But if you have only earned 1% in your saving account, you basically can buy less. And question number three. Question three has to do about risk diversification. Do you think the following statement is true or false? Buying a single company stock usually provides a safer return than a stock mutual fund. True? False? And of course, you can say, do not know. And the correct answer is true. Buying a single stock is safer than buying a mutual fund. Eh, just kidding. That's false. Because a single company is a lot riskier than a basket of stocks. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Okay, how'd you do? Did you get all three right? If so, that would put you in a distinct minority. Americans are not financially literate. That's right. Lusardi found that only around 30% of the respondents got all three questions right. The numbers are pretty similar around the world, even in other rich countries. In the U.S., financial literacy has some distinct demographic differences. Those facing most challenges, Lusardi and Mitchell wrote, are the young and the old, women, African-Americans, Hispanics, the least educated, and those living in rural areas. So financial literacy should not be taken for granted. And actually, if you ask me, I think we are at a crisis level. You might ask yourself, if financial literacy is so important and if so many people are so bad at it, what are we doing wrong? One simple answer is that even well-educated people often don't attain as part of their formal education much of a basic financial literacy. What about parents? Aren't they supposed to teach their kids the basics? Maybe, but money being what it is, a topic that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, you can see how a lot of parents, especially if they are not financially literate, somehow never get around to teaching their kids. Some people argue that financial education isn't the answer anyway. They say the main problem is that too many financial instruments are either too complicated or inherently exploitive, 
We got into this debate in an earlier episode of Freakonomics Radio. Here's the legal scholar Lauren Willis on why it'd be better to design more user-friendly financial instruments than to expect everyone to learn more about personal finance. It's sort of like saying, well, we should start teaching everybody to be their own doctor, teaching everyone to be their own mechanic. Terribly inefficient uh, to do that. Not only is it inefficient, but it, it has a sort of culture of blaming the consumer. You know, you're the one who didn't figure this all out. Uh, you, you know, didn't go to the classes or didn't pay attention or whatever. And that's not going to help in the long run. Anna Maria Lusardi does not share that view. At George Washington, she founded a research center called the Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center. Its mission is pretty obvious. And part of that mission, it turned out, was to teach financial literacy to a bunch of pro football players whose circumstances, she points out, are quite atypical. They are very young and they get all of the money that people earn in a lifetime early in life. That's right. As Lusardi writes, a career lasting six years, the median length, will provide an NFL player with more earnings than an average college graduate will get in an entire lifetime, plus a modest pension. But they just couldn't translate that sum of money, the lump sum they had, into the stream of money that could support themselves throughout life. There are a lot of ways to blow a sudden fortune. Friends and family may come at you with their palms open. You're approached by all sorts of advisors with all sorts of brilliant investment schemes. There are taxes to pay. Upper income bracket taxes, by the way, which shrink your net income by a lot. And, of course, it's a lot more exciting to spend money today than to save it for tomorrow. Lusardi, inspired by her current football students, decided to gather some data on older players. She and her colleagues looked at a cohort of NFL players who'd been drafted in the late 1990s and early 2000s to assess their long-term financial outcomes. So we look at bankruptcy rather than other measure of financial distress because these are the things we can check in which there is data. And what they find? We found that more or less 12 years uh, into retirement, 15% declare bankruptcy. That's right. 15% of these guys who'd already earned a career's worth of income went bankrupt, a rate that's similar or even higher than the overall population of men in their age group, even though the NFL retirees had obviously earned a lot more money. Lusardi also found that the risk didn't even decline for the players who earned the most. To me, the experience of the NFL is a good example of the effect of financial illiteracy. The NFL bankruptcy data reinforced Lusardi's earlier findings about financial illiteracy. So what's to be done? Because it's pretty obvious that many people have no idea how to handle their personal finances. Even people who you'd think should know, even exceedingly well-educated people like this guy. I must say I had a very lackadaisical attitude about personal finance until I was about 40 years old. That's Harold Pollack. I'm a professor of social service administration at the University of Chicago. Pollock works with University of Chicago institutions like the Crime Lab and the Center for Health Administration Studies. I have a doctorate in public policy, but I hadn't really applied it to finance. But then something happened. My mother-in-law died suddenly, and 
my brother-in-law, Vincent, had to move into our home. He's intellectually disabled, and he was 340 pounds and had many uh, related challenges. Pollock's wife had to quit her job to take care of her brother. And Pollock began to worry about their financial health. I remember one day we had to buy a a lazy boy-type chair uh, just because he was so big that uh, our furniture didn't work for him. And it was like $900 for this chair. And I just remember thinking, like, I'm just going to go through all my money. And I became obsessed with personal finance. He began looking at the literature on investing. One of the first things I learned was that the conversation among real experts was actually a lot simpler than the conversation that you would get if you watched financial TV or read brochures from financial services firms. The people Pollock calls real experts, academics typically who'd done real empirical studies, told a very different story than investment professionals. I started to joke around that the fundamental problem that the uh, industry faced was that the best advice uh, was available for free at the library. Pollock started writing about these ideas on a blog called The Reality-Based Community. For one piece, he was interviewing the financial journalist Helene Olin about a book she'd written called Pound Foolish, exposing the dark side of the personal finance industry. And I said to her, you know, isn't the industry's fundamental problem that the best uh, advice for most people would fit on an index card and it's available for free at the library? And we kind of chuckled and the conversation moved on. Except that I started getting emails from people and comments uh, on my blog saying, hey, where's the index card? But there was no index card. I was speaking metaphorically, so of course I was kind of uh, stuck, but I had planted a flag and I felt I had to honor that. So I just reached into my kitchen drawer and I pulled out my daughter's 4x6 index card, uh, you know, that she was using for school. And I scribbled down in, you know, maybe two minutes, nine rules, and I took a picture with my iPhone and I posted it on the web. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, Harold Pollock's index card catches fire on a variety of websites. Boing Boing, which I'd never heard of, actually. Lifehacker, which I also had never heard of. Also, are credit card rewards programs as good as they seem? All the research suggests that, that these reward programs just make you spend more money. And how closely should you watch your investments? Don't peek. Economics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package list, and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. As I mentioned earlier, before settling into my writing career, I thought about becoming either a psychologist or a financial advisor. What I didn't mention is that the book I was working on before Freakonomics was a perfect hybrid of those two things. It was about the psychology of money. The working title was Money Makes Me Happy, Except When It Doesn't. That book got put in a drawer once Freakonomics started happening, but I still think its animating sentiment is pretty solid. Basically, money is one of those rare topics, a bit like sex, maybe religion, that people have strong feelings about and yet have a hard time discussing. As a result, a lot of us stumble through life knowing we should know more than we do about personal finance, but we're too intimidated or embarrassed or something to do much about it. Harold Pollack, a public policy scholar at the University of Chicago, tapped into this sentiment when he dashed off an index card with nine easy rules about personal finance. It got nearly half a million hits on Pollock's blog. The Washington Post picked it up. Also, Boing Boing, which I'd never heard of, actually. Life Hacker, which I also had never heard of. Uh, You know, a bunch of these websites that actually have big followings that I'm too old to be in the target demographic for really, uh, really grabbed it. The card was translated into Romanian. Which is great. You know, I, I, I hope that people in Romania find it useful. I'm not sure that they have 401ks there. I suspect that we'd have to modify it a little bit. It was, uh, you know, just started showing up all over the place. In fact, there was a guy who plagiarized it. I found a YouTube video of some sort of a life coach who just wrote out his own card. It was word for word exactly what I wrote. And he spoke it as if he had made it up. And that's all the financial advice you're ever going to need written on this index card. It was hilarious to listen to because he actually has a great voice, uh, but he had you know, completely stolen the idea. And uh, there was just something about it for a lot of people where, you know, all of us are facing this very intimidating task. How do I save for retirement? Where do I invest my money? How do I deal with all these questions about budgeting and when to buy a house and all this kind of stuff? Oh, I just have to look at these nine rules on this card. Pollock never pretended that he'd discovered some amazing new rules of financial behavior. When my colleagues at the business school saw this and they saw what these rules were, they were just like, you're kidding. But that didn't stop him from turning his index card into a book, co-authored with the journalist Helene Olin. It is called, yes, The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to be Complicated. Of course, it's kind of ironic that I say, you know, here's this index card, that's what you need, and then... People are saying, well, why is there a book? 
And to me, it's a little bit like, you know, in some sense, you could say all of religion comes down to the Ten Commandments, but a lot of us seem to need some commentary on those and need to know how to execute those. Or depending on your religious faith, you, I, I sometimes refer to the book as the Midrash to our uh, index card for your Jewish uh, listeners. And for our non-Jewish listeners, a Midrash is rabbinic commentary or teaching on a biblical text, not quite a canonical passage, but revered nonetheless. And that's kind of what Pollock was going for with the index card book. Okay, so what's in it? Let's start with rule number one. Rule number one, strive to save 10 to 20% of your income. Because, well, if you're not saving any money, then everything else is a lot harder. One of the great things is once you start to save this money, it really reduces the stress in your life so amazingly fast. Uh, I must say that my original card said you should save 20% of your income. And that's really hard. I got a bunch of emails that were essentially of the following form. You know, Dear Professor Pollock, I'm a 28-year-old single mom and I work as a cashier. You have just told me to save 20% of my money. F*** you. And my responses to all of those emails was, you know what? You're totally right. I totally see where you're coming from. At this stage in your life, you cannot save 20% of your gross income. And, you know, when you're at that stage, you know, how can you manage your credit card debt? How can you save something? How can you start getting yourself on a good budget? You're doing that. You're doing really well. So I I think that my original card was really good for middle-class people like me. It wasn't quite as good for people that were at different stages in their life. And so I have to, I, I was brought to some humility by, uh, you know, by the large audience that uh, I inadvertently attracted. Rule number two. Rule number two. Pay your credit card balance in full every month. How important is this one? You know, this may be the most important single rule on the card for a lot of people. If you're carrying a credit card balance, Every dollar that you pay down on that, you're getting a risk-free, tax-free return that's usually more than 15%. Because that's roughly how much you're paying the credit card company for the privilege of using their money. Unless your name is Warren Buffett, you're just not going to get that kind of investment from anything else that you're doing. And credit cards and other forms of high-interest loans are just a really serious trap for a lot of people. One problem is that credit card companies are savvy, and they can make you feel like you're doing a great job just by paying off what they call the monthly minimum. You are doing a great job for them because they're collecting all that interest from you. Pollock warns us to beware of any deal that offers to help you smooth out your cash flow. So if you belong to a gym and they say you can pay $500 up front for the year, or you can make 12 equal $50 payments. If you choose that payment plan, the cost of your membership is now $600. Therefore, whenever possible, you try to use cash as much as you can and you pay off your credit card. Uh, And by the way, one of the things that I recommend to people is basically ignore your credit card reward program. All the research suggests that, that these reward programs just make you spend more money. Rule number three. Rule number three. Max out your 401k and other tax-advantaged savings accounts. A typical 401k is a retirement plan run by your employer. But there are a lot of options, including for self-employed people. There are several reasons why your 401k or your equivalent is just the foundation of your saving. 
first of all, very often your employer will kick in a matching contribution, and that is free money. You can also set up your 401k contributions to be automatic so you never have to touch the money. There are other tax-advantaged savings vehicles. So, for example, there are two things that people can do to save money for their kids' college that have tremendous tax advantages. One is called an ESA. Uh, And I won't go into the details, but the second account is called the 529. And the 529 actually allows you, if you have a little bit more money or you have a large family that wants to contribute, uh, you can actually put in up to $14,000 a year. That $14,000 ceiling, actually it just went up to $15,000, is the amount you can give per parent per child without setting off what's called the gift tax. Pollock works hard to not bring politics into his financial advice, but... As soon as you get into tax-advantaged savings plans, you're getting into politics because these tax breaks don't just happen. Someone in Washington had to draw up a plan that was meant to reward some kind of behavior. In the case of 401ks and 529s, that is saving for retirement and college, respectively. But the tax code is full of breaks, many of which, some people argue, tend to help well-off people become even better off the home mortgage interest deduction, for instance. So what are you supposed to do if you think the tax code is unfair? Well, unless you've got some friends on the House Ways and Means Committee or the Senate Finance Committee, they're the people who write the tax code, maybe the best advice is to simply work hard to exploit the existing tax breaks. Sure, you can complain that the tax code favors rich people, or you could say, hey, using the tax code to my advantage could help me become rich. All right, moving on to rule number four. Never buy or sell individual stocks. And rule number five. Buy inexpensive, well-diversified index mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. We actually spent our previous episode going over this idea in some detail. Bottom line, most people who pick stocks for a living do a worse job than a monkey with a dartboard. And they charge you a lot more than a monkey would. How much? Enough to fund their beautiful offices and homes and boats. Even though, again, your investment returns will likely be worse than if you just bought, as Harold Pollack notes, some low-cost diversified index funds. This is a completely easy one. There's just a ton of literature that suggests that people chase after shiny objects and the stocks that we buy aren't particularly well chosen and the stocks that we sell, we're often selling them at the wrong times. So, you know, why do you want to get into that? We also spoke last week with Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, the world's largest universe of low-cost index funds. Here's how Bogle summarizes the appeal of what Pollock is preaching. You want to capitalize on the magic of compounding returns without succumbing to the tyranny of compounding costs. But that tyranny of compounding costs can be hard to resist because the people who sell investment advice are really good at selling it. They make you believe that they alone know the secrets to the investing universe. They do it in TV commercials like this one. We understand the connections of a complex global economy. It's just one reason. Pollock's advice? Do not heed the siren call of slick, fancy, expensive investment advisors. For what it's worth, this has become quite standard advice, and it's backed up by acres of research. That research also suggests that for the average investor, 
Diversification is a good idea. A few different types of stock index funds, growth, value, international, etc. And also some bond funds and maybe some other less sexy investments. You want to have the right percentage of your investments in stocks and in the other classes that you invest in. So if the stock market drops 20%, you should be buying stocks after that, not because you think the market's now undervalued or anything like that, but just because the percentage of your portfolio that is in stocks is now below where you want it to be. I like the idea of a little balance in your asset allocation. Jack Bogle again. For the youngest investors, and when you first start, obviously you should be 100% in stocks, but as you build up a little assets, maybe by the time you're 25 or 30, you're probably going to want to be 15, 20% in bond funds and uh, 85% in stock funds. And uh, as you get older, uh, you're going to probably want more in bond funds and less in stock funds uh, because you know the fear of loss is going to be greater when you have a very large amount of money. Obviously, it can be really hard for the average person to take in and execute all this investment advice on their own. So you might consider hiring a financial advisor, but, Pollock says, not just any financial advisor. Rule number six. Make your financial advisor commit to the fiduciary standard. The fiduciary standard is a federal requirement designed to ensure that financial advisors don't sell clients products that are better for themselves than the clients. It basically says all the advice that you're giving me and all the products that you're offering me are designed to maximize my own financial well-being. You're not being paid by anybody except me. I understand in a transparent way your financial incentives. And if you don't have the fiduciary standards, it's a little bit like walking onto the Ford lot and saying, do you think I need a new car yet or do you think I should keep driving the old one for another couple of years? There was a wonderful study done by some uh, researchers at Harvard where they just sent out actors who had different kinds of retirement savings and they would go into storefront financial firms and they would just say, hey, here's what we're doing. Tell us if we should do something different. And some of them had crazy investments that were, you know, say all in the stock in their employer. Some of them had absolutely excellent investments that have been designed by financial professionals in low-cost index funds and things like that. The ones that had excellent investments, the majority of the financial advisors they talked to recommended that they actually not do that, that they do something that is essentially a more expensive imitation of that. This is not meant to besmirch the reputation of all financial advisors. It's also worth noting that sometimes it may be the advisors who try to keep their clients on the right track. So we get paid a percentage of assets. Barry Ritholtz writes about investing but also runs an asset management firm. So the more assets we gather and the better those assets perform, the more revenue the firm sees. Ritholtz has instituted a clever incentive to address his clients' investing behavior. If people maintain a portfolio for three years and don't do anything foolish with it and there's a constant temptation to do something foolish, we will discount our fees an additional 15 percent as sort of a, uh, a good reward for, for good behavior. The thinking is left to their own devices after three years, people get bored and they'll start, especially in a market like we've seen over the past few years, so they start looking for a little, a little fun, a little action, and hey, maybe we should roll out of this long-term conservative portfolio and start dabbling in IPOs and venture capital, and we want to discourage that behavior. All right, moving on. 
to the single biggest expenditure most of us will ever think about. Rule number seven, buy a home when you are financially ready. Okay, so let's pull that apart. The buying a home piece and the financially ready piece. I think we should think of our home as something that we use and consume and something that helps us with our life, not as the major pillar of our wealth. I think that we've been conditioned from birth to believe that you're not a full adult until you own a home. And you have to be careful about that. You know, your, your home is the most leveraged and undiversified investment you're ever going to make in your life. And so you don't want to rush into buying a home when you want to buy a home in a very sensible way. Sensible meaning what? And that means when you have a nice 20% down payment, which lets you get good terms on your loan, it means getting a sort of vanilla ice cream fixed rate 15-year or 30-year loan rather than to try to do something like an adjustable rate mortgage. And it means buying a home that you can afford and still have a strategic reserve if you move in and your hot water heater breaks or a raccoon eats its way through your roof or all the things that can happen to a home. Buying a home also represents what economists call a commitment device. It's a way to lock yourself into a behavior you need some help getting locked into. In this case, your mortgage payment is a forced savings plan. Pollock sees the value in this thinking, but the lock, he says, can be fairly flimsy. A home is a good commitment device, although it's a less effective commitment device than it once was because of home equity loans. Home equity loans used to be called second mortgages. There was a certain stigma to getting them. They were not common. And one of the challenges we discovered in the uh, foreclosure crisis was there were just a lot of people that were trying to dip into their home equity. And when their value of their home dropped, boy, that could really blow up on you. So, uh, so if you're going to use it as a commitment device, you have to actually commit to it and not try to dip into your home equity in various ways. So that's buy a home when you're financially ready. Rule number eight. Rule number eight, insurance. Make sure you're protected. Ah, insurance. So many types, so much pressure and fear. Honestly, that's a topic for a whole other episode someday. Maybe we'll get to that. But for now, here's Pollock's thumbnail take. The purpose of insurance is to make sure that you are protected if you have a life-changing event. You don't need insurance for the $500 problem when somebody hits a baseball through your kitchen window. You do need insurance when the tree falls and there's a $50,000 problem, uh, you know, and your whole kitchen gets taken out. You need life insurance in case the people that depend on you need you after you die. Uh, you need liability insurance when you're driving. You need to make sure that your life wouldn't change if there was some sort of an adverse event. One of the things that we advise people in general is get the largest deductible that you can. You want the homeowner's insurance with the $5,000 deductible if you can get it. First of all, it costs money for the insurer to honor all these smaller claims. Uh, you know, you really don't want to be having to pay for that. But secondly, the people who get the high deductible insurance are the people who know that they're pretty unlikely to use their insurance. So you're putting yourself in an insurance pool that's likely to be more favorable than the ones with the low deductibles. And uh, so, so insurance is important to guard against the big things, not the little things. Pollock's next rule, he admits, is in a different category than the others. It is not actually about personal finance. Rule number nine, do what you can to support the social safety net. 
Pollock has heard from a lot of people who don't like rule number nine. They said, you know, you're giving all this sensible investment advice, and then you got all political on me. But Pollock thought it was essential to include this for a few reasons. One is there's a lot of people who need help. Secondly, to the extent that my story is, is a part of our book, it would not be fully honest if I left off rule number nine. You know, I, at the beginning of our conversation, I talked about how my brother-in-law, Vincent, moved into our home and what a challenge that was because of his intellectual disability and his medical challenges. We would have absolutely gone bankrupt without his Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid that prevented our family, you know, from losing everything, taking care of him. And we have to have each other's backs. And what the social safety net does, what social insurance does, is it allows us to protect each other against these risks that would just crush any one of us if we had to face it alone. And I think it's really important, you know, as individuals, we should do everything that we can to be prudent investors and to support ourselves and our families and to follow the rules that I've laid out. But, you know, you cannot guard against everything in life. I don't particularly enjoy paying my taxes on April 15th, but I do feel that the American taxpayer had my back when I had a crisis, and, uh, you know, I should be doing the same thing for other people. As you may recall, Harold Pollock's index card had nine rules, but his and Helene Olin's book, called The Index Card, has ten. Rule number ten. Remember the index card. Okay. Admittedly, this one is kind of meta. The idea here is, you know, we hope that this card is helpful. You know, take it out, put it on your refrigerator. It's a reminder. A lot of recent social science research suggests that reminders like these, nudges like these, are pretty effective. Also, one reason people often fail to make good decisions, financial or otherwise, is because those decisions are too complicated or intimidating. So, simplicity is a thing to strive for and to value. Will a simplified choice always lead to optimal outcomes? Of course not. But will it generally produce a better outcome than either avoiding the problem or doing something really stupid? Yes, it will. Experience is also pretty valuable. I guess it goes without saying. So to conclude this primer on personal finance, Maybe it makes sense to hear a bit more from the most experienced investor I know, Vanguard founder Jack Bogle. At 88 years old, you know, I might be the most blessed man in the United States of America. Bogle's longevity was not preordained. In 1960, I had my first heart attack. Uh, I was only 30 years old, 31 years old. Had it on a tennis court, and uh, I almost died. And uh, I had a disease that had never been discovered. It was finally discovered years later in France, but I was a mystery man. Uh, And uh, the doctors looked at me kind of funny. And when I got a pacemaker inserted, one doctor said to me, you know, you really probably don't have that much time left. So why why don't you go up to the Cape and just, you know, walk out on the beaches every day. Take it easy, enjoy the remaining time on, on this earth. Bogle did not follow that doctor's advice. A few decades later, he did need a heart transplant. The transplant took place 21 years ago, and I think I've broken a lot of records for anybody 65 years of age who gets a transplant. 
And not many 65-year-olds get 21 extra years. So let's hear your quick advice for a primer on personal finances, aside from investing in index funds. We know you're going <laughs> to we know you're going to advocate that. But it sounds like you've got uh, a personal philosophy in terms of personal finance as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's basically, um, you know, pretty simple, you know, avoid emotions and uh, concentrate on the economics. Uh, it's invest for the long term and don't trade. The ups and downs of the markets are unpredictable and foolish in the short term. You say that as someone who's successful at avoiding emotions, but you have to know that most people aren't. Whether we're talking about investing or saving versus spending or politics or whatever, how did you either get to be the kind of rational thinker that you are, or how do you advise people move in that direction? Because plainly, it's not so easy for most people. No, and it's, let me be honest, it's not easy for me. And when we get one of these 50% declines, I've faced, I think, three of them in my career. It's not fun. I get a knot in my stomach. A lifetime of experience, 65 years of experience in this field, has taught me that emotions are evil, and therefore you really ought to fight to keep them out of the equation. Because the day you're most concerned is the day the market hits bottom. And that's the day you want to get out. And the day you don't want to get in, when the market hits a new high. Well, believe me, buying in at the market's new high and selling out at the market's bottom is a very difficult way to make money. <laughs> what about spending versus saving? And uh, how would you counsel someone to think about that? Well, every family is different, given the unequal distribution of income. 20% uh, of the families can't possibly invest. They're trying to stay alive. You know, keep the wolf from the door. Uh, keep the children fed and housed and warm. Uh, so when you get up the scale of living, uh, you're able to afford more. And I think people should pay themselves first out of every paycheck, have a, a contribution to a, a pension plan, and just keep putting it away. Don't even look at it. Don't peek. And uh, when you open your envelope when you're age 65 and are retired, be sure and you have a good cardiologist with you because you're going to faint. <laughs> faint with happiness, not with shock. Faint with happiness, right. <laughs> you won't believe it. Believe it. Coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio, what is the one thing that makes humans human? Oh, my gosh. I mean, as an economist, I would say cooperative trade. Are you sure... A bunch of biologists have been exploring whether other animals engage in cooperative trade. I said, well, if that works, they'll eat my head. Obviously, I was extremely excited. I, I was hoping for this market effect. You're saying that Homo economicus is really, that the, the idea of that is probably more fully present in animals other than humans then, yeah? Yeah, you should leave out the Homo part and you, you're going okay. <laughs> Animal economics. Also, what does make humans human? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Greg Rosalski. Our staff also includes Allison Hockenberry, Merritt Jacob, Stephanie Tam, Max Miller, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez. We had help on this episode from Sam Baer. 
Most of the music in this episode was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You should also check out our archive at Freakonomics.com, where you can stream or download every episode we've ever made. You can also read the transcripts and find links to the underlying academic research. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Thanks for listening. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.